Uh, good evening. I th I'm uh, Roger Kimball. I think most of you know the co-editor and publisher of The New Criterion. And it's my pleasant duty to welcome you all to this dual-purpose celebration. One purpose tonight is to uh, celebrate the prolegomenon of a conference organized jointly by The New Criterion and the renowned London-based think tank, the intriguingly named Social Affairs Unit. And I'd like to thank My Michael Mossbacker. Michael, where are you? Yeah. It's out right there. Uh, the director of the SAU for his indis indispensable help in making possible this, our sixth annual collaboration, to foster the special intellectual relationship that exists between England and America. Uh, our topic this year for the conference concerns the present reality and the future prospects of conservatism in Britain and the United States. And we've assembled an illustrious group of thinkers from both sides of the pond to cogitate and shed light upon this large and perhaps seemingly unwieldy subject. We'll be meeting all day tomorrow, beginning at 9 o'clock sharp, at the Union League Club on 37th Street and Park Avenue. And by 5, 5 p.m., I confidently predict, we will have solved, or at least otherwise disposed of, most of the pressing problems of the day. And if anyone here is interested in being party to this spectacle, please see my colleague, Ellie Thurmanson, in the back there, uh, waving, uh, who will give you the details about the conference. We have a limited number of places available in the audience, and I know that today's discussion will be stimulating and illuminating. The second purpose of tonight's festivity is to welcome John O'Sullivan to this convocation of the Friends of the New Criterion. This is our first meeting of the season, and although I'm pleased to see many familiar faces before me, I'm equally pleased to see a few new ones. Uh, I've always regarded the New Criterion as, at least in part, a kind of missionary enterprise, and I never venture out without hoping to acquire a few new converts. And I direct anyone wishing to gratify me in this matter to see Ellie again, who has come armed also with the necessary appurtenances to fulfilling that ambition. Now, John O'Sullivan will be joining us tomorrow in our discussion of conservatism, but I asked him tonight to step back and reflect in a more general way about the itinerary of conservatism in recent years. I can think of no one better qualified for the task. John's intellectual achievements are both too numerous and too well-known to recite. Even to list all the mountain peaks of his resume, his work for Margaret Thatcher, for example, or his distinguished editorship of National Review would detain us, detain us unconscionably. So I'll just mention two items that, in my mind, recommend him irresistibly to your attention to this group tonight. The first is his new book, The President, the Pope, and the Prime Minister, Show the book. Remember, always show the book. <laughs> a brilliant and unputdownable book about Ronald Reagan, John Paul II, and John's old boss, Margaret Thatcher. Among other things, John reminds us in this book that it doesn't take a village, but rather a strong-willed and decisive individuals to change the world for the better. It's a very simple message, but a very powerful one, and John makes it uh, with, with great eloquence in this book. The second thing that indisputably recommends John to this group 
is a superb intellectual taste and critical judgment. I think, for example, of his limpidly formulated judgment that the new criterion is, and I quote, quite simply the best cultural review in the world. <laughs> Even I cannot improve upon that, especially since John went on to describe the new criterion as also indispensable. <laughs> but I've talked long enough, and it's a pleasure and an honor to welcome John O'Sullivan to talk to us tonight. Well, thank you very much, Roger, for that uh, in, uh, introduction, which was, of course, charming and agreeable, but slightly intimidating, because my memory of our conversation about tonight's talk was quite different. I, I, thought, I thought you'd said to me, well, you can't talk about conservatism, of course, because you're talking about it tomorrow. Why don't you just talk about, well, I don't know, anything you feel like? And, and I'd said, uh, so I was going to follow the old tradition of, um, you know, the hallowed tradition, and talk about my vacation. LAUGHTER <laughs> And in fact, I did have quite an interesting vacation because I went to, because I went to Turkey and, and I could, you know, if necessary, bore you for several hours about the case for and against believe, accepting the present government there as a reasonably decent one and so on and so forth. But too many people have done that and anyway, the answers are speculative. So I shall, in fact, be talking to some extent about conservatism, but I'm going to enter it from a slightly unusual direction and I hope end in a slightly unusual way too. And that is by discussing the fact, my recent visit, uh, discussing conservatism in the light of my recent visit to Poland. And that wasn't a vacation, although it was at least as enjoyable as most vacations. It, it was, in fact, I was there to sell my book, uh, which is Pope the President. <laughs> um, and, and, of course, um, if you go to Poland now as a, um, uh, to talk about the end of the Cold War, even if you're not talking about the Pope, and if you are talking about the Pope, they are, of course, absolutely fascinated and tremendously proud because it is not often, well, actually it is too often in a sense that Poland has played a major role in world events, but it is not often it's played a major role in the happy solution to world events. And the, the Poles are tremendously proud of the part that John Paul II played in, in um, the end of communism. They're also tremendously proud of the part that Lech Wałęsa played in the end of, of in the end of communism. In, in general, if you if I talk about my book, uh, I get a question from any audience which says, uh, "You've got these three people here: Reagan, Thatcher, and the Pope." I dare say they were quite important, but wasn't there a fourth person who was even more important? Um, and the person you know outside Poland goes on to cite Mikhail Gorbachev. But in Poland, they ask you exactly the same question, except it's Lech Wałęsa, whom they go on to, to suggest is, the most, is another very important person. And my view of that is very simple. It is that Wałęsa was an extremely important person in the end of communism. But he was a very important person who's, who um, was not in the same position of influence as a pope or a president or a prime minister. So although he had, for, in a sense, an an unusually extended period, tremendous influence on the course of events by, first of all, invading, climbing over the wall into the Lenin shipyard, and then, um, when he'd done that, leading the first successful independent fight to establish an independent trade union in, um, in uh, a communist country, and then surviving the imposition uh, of martial law the first time that communist repression had plainly failed to subdue its targets. 
he did all of these things and is therefore an extremely important person in the end of the Cold War. Now, the end of the Cold War is a conservative achievement, of course, in my view. I mean, I'm not suggesting that the liberals did not play a part in it. They did, though I think their, their major beneficial part was played at an earlier stage from the late 40s till, say, the early 70s. Once 68 and the Vietnam War intervened, liberals shuffle to the edge of the conflict and become, some of them, observers, some of them sympathetic to the wrong side, and some of them lonely adventurers uh, of an ex-liberal kind whom we now call neoconservatives. But there is no doubt that in the great achievement of ending the Cold War, uh, that it was conservatives, in my view, who took all of the, all of the hotly contested decisions. It was easy to take decisions, which everyone agrees about, but the really hotly contested decisions were taken by conservatives. Now, when you go to Poland, what you discover is that the people in Poland are very well aware of this. A young man interviewed me and asked me a lot of questions, which I, I, well, it wasn't so much the questions he asked. It was his appearance. In any country other than Poland, I would have put down him and most of the people who interviewed me as some kind of dangerous radical. Uh, but in Poland, he's a dangerous radical of the right. He's somebody who admires John Paul II, somebody who admires Mrs. Thatcher, somebody who admires Ronald Reagan, someone who follows Vek Berwenska. And the young people in Poland, and not just the young, but the young people in particular, they look at the Cold War as something which was won by their heroes in the West and, and won by their heroes from Poland. Now, I was at the end of the, uh, this interview, this young man said to me, um, why is it, it was an odd question for him to put to me, he said, why is it that there's a square named after Franklin Delano Roosevelt here in Warsaw and there isn't one named after Ronald Reagan? I said, well, I, I'm afraid I don't know. Uh, and, uh, and he said, well, isn't that a disgrace? I said, well, um, um, what have you got against Roosevelt? And, and of course, the answer, which I knew as soon as I, before he, he answered, was Yalta. And um, Poles look at the history of the post-war world through a lens marked Yalta. And although they obviously would have preferred the British to have played a more successful role in 1939-40, there's not a lot of resentment over our failure to assist the Poles more practically because obviously it wasn't a very easy thing to do in any way. They have to admit that they themselves did not do well against the Germans. But when they come to the late stages of the war, they look at Yalta and they say to themselves, this is a moment in which Poland, for all her gallantry and decency, was betrayed. Now that gallantry and decency um, are, it seems to me, um, uh, it, plainly something which we in, the, we in other countries in that alliance have never fully recognized. Um, certainly, I think it's, we are more aware of it in England because we are aware of the people who came across and were part of the, uh, and were part of the, um, um, uh, the RAF uh, from, from 1940 onwards, and particularly those pilots who flew in the RAF to try to drop supplies to the embattled Warsaw Uprising in 1944. Now, that's an occasion, 
and I went round the, war, the, the new museum of the Warsaw Uprising. That's an occasion which is deeply burned, as is Katyn, into the Polish memory and imagination. It's, it's deeply burned into mine, having been round the museum. There are many aspects, as you probably know, for seven weeks, the Poles rose up because the Red Army was on the edges of Warsaw. They rose up, and they, uh, at that point, they, um, uh, they were expecting the Russians to, to come in. They rose up, they seized the city. For four or five days, it looked as though they were winning, and the Russians, on Stalin's orders, just remained on the edges of Warsaw. And as a result, uh, the city fell after seven gallant weeks. If you go to the museum, you actually sit in a little cinema, there was a cinema called the Palladium in Warsaw, and you sit in the mock-up of that cinema and you watch the newsreels that the people made at that time. It's extremely moving, and, and, and you realize that the, for the Poles, uh, the, 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 the murder of the officers at Katyn and the suppression of the Warsaw Uprising uh, are extraordinarily important moments in, in, them, in their imagination, and the third of those moments is Yalta because at Yalta they feel that they were let down. And they were. Even worse, though, than that, I think, because there was, little, there was little ability to do anything about their being let down, was the fact that they were, uh, we lied about their being let down. There were debates in which courageous members of parliament and courageous members of Congress actually told the truth about Yalta at the time. The future prime minister, Alec Douglas Hume, was one of the MPs who voted against it. Those things are, are deeper remembered in Poland. And so Poland felt itself to have been a peculiar victim of betrayal and a peculiar victim of oppression. So when the Pope came along, as he did, um, it was an extremely important moment. And when he found allies in the United States, in Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan, and in Britain, Margaret Thatcher, that too was an important moment. Those, those were important moments that they remember. That they now see the war, the end of the Cold War, as, so to speak, a joint Polish-Anglo-American operation that to some extent wipes out the stain of Yalta and the failure to help the Poles in later years. Now, we don't see it, obviously, in exactly that way. But I think we have to learn to see, uh, see it in this way to some extent, because the kind of war we are waging at the moment, and conservatism now finds itself fighting a different battle. We've got to, we've got to realize that, as we, that just as the Poles um, were, for, um, that just as the Poles were, so to speak, abandoned for some time, uh, that because we didn't understand the nature of the conflict, so um, we don't understand the nature of the conflict today. If, if I were to say our biggest problem, and I certainly have to acknowledge that I'm saying this as a result of reading papers by people at the conference tomorrow, like Andy McCarthy's. If I have to acknowledge the biggest problem facing conservatism today and facing America today and facing Britain today, it is the fact that our, the leaders of our society have no idea of the nature of the struggle that they're engaged in. They are far too inclined to think it's something that they don't have to worry too much about. The Poles could never feel that because of Katyn. I should add, by the way, that, that, there is, um, that there is a new film being just released in Poland by the distinguished film director Andrzej Wajda about Katyn, which, although it was opening after I left, uh, there were a number of um, reviews saying, saying exactly that uh, 
it, there, no, no film could be made again about this because this was the film that told all of the truth and in the most brilliant possible way. Now, um, what does conservatism mean? If conservatism means anything, I think, in our current circumstances, obviously it means different things in different circumstances. It means the defense of the West and its values. And the West and its values, um, we, we defended the West better than we defended its values during the Cold War. Um, although we actually won the Cold War in the end, it was an extremely depressing victory. Uh, there was no celebration. There was no sense of victory. There was, in fact, kind of a diplomatic decision not to acknowledge that it was a victory because that might offend uh, the, Soviet, the former Soviet Union and damage future relations. But this has left, I think, not so much in Poland, where, I, where the role of the Pope means that the people have a very clear sense that there was a victory and there was a defeat for the other side. But certainly in countries like Hungary and elsewhere, there is a feeling that somehow the entire operation um, was, had less meaning than it ought to have done. And again, I'm, I'm, talking under the, I'm talking under the influence of my recent visit here, but there is an election at the moment in Poland. And there is a sense in that election that there is a subterranean issue in uh, taking place within uh, the, the, the Central and Eastern Europe. Subterranean issue is this, that the same people who govern them under the communists uh, continue to govern them today. They certainly do, for example, in Hungary. Those people do so sometimes, so to speak, um, legitimately because um, Communist Party turned Social Democrats have been elected to govern them. Sometimes they govern them um, illegitimately, as for example there is a sense that there is a shadowy network of um, kleptocrats who privatized industries corruptly and got control of them, who maintain links with uh, the, uh, the, the former Polish Communist intelligence services which themselves retain links with the FSB, which is the successor of the KGB. There is a sense that in all of these countries that the government isn't quite as free and democratic, as independent as we might wish. And that is a big issue in the Polish election, if you're following it today. Because that election is one in which the present government, with all its faults, and it has serious faults, is actually attempting to extirpate what's known as the network the network of, of, of former communists who still maintain important positions and whom they think distort, uh, distort politics uh, on the question of, um, of uh, on, on energy particularly, but on other things. So when you come to Poland, you come to a country in which you come to a country which had great grievances, which regarded itself as having achieved a, a great uh, step forward in um, in, in uh, end, helping to end the Cold War, being one of the primary agents in winning the Cold War, and yet feel somehow <coughs> that the Cold War is not yet entirely won. And that should give those of us in the West, mainly conservatives, some pause. There is a lot of unfinished business in Europe today, and we should, one of the things we should do is attempt to finish it. And conservatism has got to be clear about this. We faced the challenge, we face the challenge of Islamic radicalism. That's a new challenge. We face the challenge of, a, of a, what I would describe as a, a new establishment, which is perhaps in America and elsewhere 
the first dissident ruling class in history, the first ruling class which doesn't really like its own society, the first a ruling class which at the end of the Cold War wasn't exactly in power, it was sort of out of power at the time, and therefore didn't really want, didn't really want the Cold War to end as it did. And finally, you have the detritus of the Cold War still left in power to some extent in Eastern Europe. Now, oddly enough, that is a great opportunity for us because in Eastern Europe, there is a sense of greater realism about history than you find in Western Europe, where Western European conservatives have in the main decided that they still will remain on a holiday from history. But in Eastern Europe, they are so aware that, the that there is a threat from Russia, they are so aware that their own societies have not entirely escaped from the octopus, they are so aware that, that, um, that, that the West, uh, that they need America, not Europe, they need America in order to be a guarantor of their future freedom. So the itinerary of, uh, of conservatism, to, to, uh, to quote uh, Roger, has not yet reached its destination. And that brings me to my final point. I hope I'm not... Uh, is, is that? that brings me to my final point. Itinerary, destination. Um, when I was in Rocklaw, I had dinner with a lawyer who, it turns out, was also a, a passionate uh, a a supporter of the theatre. I love the theatre, so whenever I'm in Eastern Europe, I always ask uh, about the theatrical tradition and the drama, dramatic tradition. A few years ago... I was in um, Lithuania, and I discovered what I hadn't known before, that there had been an extremely vigorous avant-garde theater before the Second World War there. And the same, it turns out, has been true of Poland uh, and, and, of, um, and of Eastern Germany, which is where Rocklaw was at the time. Well, um, there is a theater actually in the railway station at Rocklaw. I mean, it's physically in the station. And so the people who were running the theatre decided that they would do something rather interesting. They decided that they would stage a play which began in the station, took the audience on the train, took them to another destination, brought them back, and then put them there again. Well, the play that emerged from this is a very, very powerful play about the concerns that we all have here. It begins with a train... The, the train journeys actually took place. It begins with a train journey taking Polish refugees... Taking, um, um, taking Holocaust victims uh, from that station uh, elsewhere. It, there's another journey back which brings, which brings the, the new communist rulers of Poland back to that station. And then, because Rocklaw was the place in which the communists held... Uh, a cultural conference in the early 50s, there is a debate between two people attending this cultural conference. And the cultural conference and the debate is between a group of um, uh, uh, lib um, Polish liberals who find themselves living desperately under a, a communist oppressive regime. And they are talking to an English friend and they say to him, you have no idea what's going on here. You think that this is a cultural conference, but only half a mile away there are young men from the Polish Home Army who are being systematically tortured. And so he says, well, this is monstrous. We must do something about it. They say, no, please don't, because if you do, 
we will lose our only contact we now have with civilized people in the West. You won't be able to write to us, your letters won't arrive. We'll, you won't be able to send us books, the books won't arrive. Um, it, we may even ourselves find our, we may even find ourselves taken away. Now, um, this struck me as a play which it would be well worth um, putting on at the National Theatre in London or at uh, a theatre in New York. Obviously, you couldn't quite do it in Grand Central Station, but nonetheless, the the play could be done. And that brought up another idea, which turns out, which uh, and uh, which uh, I had been discussing with friends, including in the past, Roger, some time ago. And that is this. Some of the most important political messages in recent years have been conveyed in the theatre. Uh, Tom Stoppard is just demonstrating the fact at the moment. He's telling the truth about both 19th century Russian revolution and he's also telling the truth about the people who collaborated willingly in, with communism in the West in the play Rock and Roll. But we don't have to always go to the theatre for political instruction. Indeed, I think most people here would think we should very rarely do go to the theatre for that reason. But nonetheless, we are linked, or could be linked better, with countries like Poland and the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and indeed countries like Italy, Spain and France, if we, had, if we saw more of their plays and we, they saw more of ours. So what I propose is the following idea. And Roger, let me relieve any anxiety you may have about thinking I'm going in for a fundraising pitch here because what I am proposing, what I am proposing is a raid, certainly a raid, but it is a raid on the public treasury. And better, it is a raid on the public treasury of the European Union. Uh, and I, what it seems to me is that we should try to do is this. We should, first of all, establish the idea that we should re recall that a great many excellent plays, plays which are excellent from an artistic or from a market standpoint, plays which have been hits, never get performed in other languages. I mean, Coward wrote, let's take popular playwrights, Coward wrote 50 plays. How many of those plays have been translated into French and German? I should think about five or six. Pirandello wrote 50 plays. I think they've all been translated into English. But um, how many have been uh, performed and how many could be performed given that the translations are now out of date and, and would seem odd on the stage? Um, so why not go to the organizations which give money to the most ridiculous purposes posing as art and say to them cynically, we can save you from people like Jesse Helms. If you want to continue giving money for these purposes, then we are going to give you other purposes which will quieten these conservative critics. We are going to suggest that you give money to translate, to have plays of proven worth translated and adapted. Having done that, we then go to the stoppards of this world, to the Robert Rietis and to others, and we say, we have the money to enable you to adapt and translate some plays. And those plays will be plays which we know already have won an audience. And having done that, since a play is not a play until it's been performed, it's only a, it's a document until then, we go to theatre festivals in particular and say, we can give you the opportunity of staging the world premiere in English of a play which packed the houses in Paris 
or Rome, or Bratislava, or Poznan, or Rocklaw, um, um, for, for two years. And having, you know, we, having got the money, and having hired the talent, and having procured the venue, what you now have is the ability of the theatre to tell the truth, um, um, to tell, not just the truth, but to, to, uh, to, to take plays which are part of the Western tradition, but which most Westerners have never heard, and spread the knowledge and love of theatre. Now, as my argument suggests, some of the, these plays will be pure, light-hearted entertainment, and none the worse for that. Frankly, I would rather see a play by Noel Coward uh, than one by Pirandello, although I like both. But having said that, there are many plays which tell the truth about our century, about the way in which um, lies and oppression and terror were camouflaged as peace, love and justice, and those plays need to be performed, perhaps beginning with the play which is called Bratislava Train Prisoners, uh, that is now shown to great acclaim in Polish, in Rocklaw. Now, that's just a very modest proposal and may get nowhere, but, uh, but the fact is that, uh, and it's, it may not seem at first, case, at first sight to have much with the itinerary of conservatism, but uh, if I understand conservatism aright, it seems to me that conservatism is the doctrine of telling the truth, telling the truth about situations that politicians want to lie about, being realistic about them, being skeptical about big ideas, bringing them down to earth and making them live. And if, if I'm right about that, then the, um, what we need to do is to ensure that our ideas are not simply presented in party political manifestos and political speeches, but in plays, novels, poems, and documentaries. And in, in the, doc, in, and, and in the um, magazines and journals that practice a form of criticism that makes these ideas, uh, that makes the criticism of the ideas live as well as the ideas should live. And that is what I imagine the new criterion to do. Uh, it certainly does it. I also take it to be that's what it intends to do. It's its mission. But so I, I therefore want to suggest to the new criterion that um, as a result of, of my trip to Poland, that we really need to, to we really need to establish some kind of fund that will enable the experiences of people like ourselves in unimaginably different situations in the last hundred years, how those stories, as well as other stories, can be told in a vivid and powerful way. Uh, and um, I commend the idea to you. Thank you very much.